You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Alive, a monthly conversation about the Disney animated canon in chronological order. Uh, this month, uh, in the words of uh, President Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt, Michael and I are seeking to affirm faith in this Western world of ours through a wider exchange of culture and education and thought, a free expression among the various nations of this hemisphere. And we're doing that by uh, viewing the film Saludos Amigos, uh, which came out in 1943. Is that right? Did I, I that think right? that's right, yeah. Yeah, I have all these notes written down, and I didn't write down the date. So, yeah. So, uh, a very short film. 42 minutes or something. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to believe that this one is even considered full length. 42 minutes does not seem like a full length film. It's like not, like that would be like an hour television special, like would be about 42 minutes long with the commercials, right? Yeah, that's interesting. And I imagine if this, if they had produced this today, it probably would have come out on television. And it, and it has, it has a feel of some of the, uh, your host, Walt Disney, and uh, like the wonderful world of Disney, because it, it has that kind of educational feel as well as entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, it sets that tone. I mean, I guess this is before uh, television is really. Well, what year was television even invented? It's definitely before television is popular. So. Right. Yeah, I, I forget. I forget the numbers, but something like six thousand Americans had a television at the beginning of the fifties. So that's, I mean, many years after this. That, certainly, television would not have been an option. So they released it theatrically. Yeah, and I think it was actually they had a a series of of shorts that they're planning to do, and uh, they they decided to package them partly because because each short kind of deals with a different country. They felt like they would, they would play better as a whole rather than if you just receive, if you just release the Brazil short, for example, then it's not going to be popular anywhere except for Brazil. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's about, it's about marketing it in South, South America. I think, I think what they said was no Brazilians going to want to watch the Argentinian sketch and no, no Chileans going to want to watch the Brazilian sketch. I don't know if it's true or not, but certainly, I mean, this this sets the precedent because now the next four or five movies, at least, are all package films. Yeah, and a lot of that is just because of the budget constraints and the Walt Disney Studio, as we talked a little bit about during our Dumbo episode. Um, they were have, just having hard times with uh, the workers were on strike, and uh, Disney was in debt to the banks um, because of the the war in Europe. Uh, their receipts from the European countries were were not being were not coming in in the way that they they had for like Snow White, for example. So uh, Disney's Disney's in hard times for the for the next few uh, months of our of our show here as we go through these package films. And the, the strike in particular, I think, really messed Walt Disney up. I, I think he was not prepared for it. He felt like the animators had betrayed him in some ways, and not every animator 
join the strike, I think. I mean, for example, the ones who traveled with him, as we'll talk about in a moment, down to South Carolina, South Carolina, <laughs> South America, <laughs> uh, they, they obviously weren't on strike. And, and it, the, so you and I think both watched the movie Walt and El Grupo, which gives you more background than you could possibly want about, uh, about Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. It's twice as long as both of them put together. Um, but I, I it, it was a little unclear to me the circumstances of the strike. It sounded in, in Disney's explanation as though uh, some sort of outside agitator. I wrote down his name, uh, Sorrel, uh, had had came in and kind of fomented dissent among the the Disney animators. But my guess is that that's only half the story, and that because the because Walton Ogrippa was funded by the Walt Disney Family Museum. Um, my, my guess is they're they're probably leaving out the other side of that story because it might not mesh so well with what he thought. But regardless, regardless, this strike devastated him. He called it the worst time of his life, and I, I think the the trip to South America was was probably as necessary for his mental health as for the health of the studio. Yeah, it seems that way. the The Walt Disney book, the biography that I've mentioned several times on the show, um, also spends quite a bit of time on the strike and. Uh, maybe gives more of a full picture than the than Walt and El Grupo does, but um, definitely. I mean, it was just a time of um, it's yeah, it's out of my out of my depth a little bit. <clears throat> Sorry, out of my depth a little bit to uh, speak very clearly on it because I don't really understand the labor disputes and how people were getting paid. But apparently, there was quite a bit of disparity in the studio among um, you know the. the the people who had been there for a while and who had kind of grown up with the studio and then some of the, uh, the, the workers who were coming in and the amount of money that they were being, being paid. So. And Walt, Walt must have felt like it was some sort of family affair. That was the, that was the impression I got from Walt and El Grupo. I mean, if only because so many people worked with their spouses in some capacity at Walt Disney Studios. And I mean, I think there were four, married couples who went on this trip and they I don't think they went because the wives wanted to sightsee. I think they were working. So most famously, and we'll finally get to talk about her in some detail, Mary Blair goes on, on the South America trip with her husband Lee Blair. Uh and I, I, I can't remember who the other ones were. Certainly Walt's wife Lillian went and then two other married couples went. And, and they were all working, except probably Lillian, I don't think. She, I mean I don't think she was an artist, but um so I, I think he must have felt betrayed. I, I think he must have seen this as something other than just a workplace. But I don't know. I'm 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 guessing there. No, I think I think you're right on point. And I think I think you see it a little later um, with Walt's kind of utopian vision um, that that you see coming out both in the films and more. I think more so in the parks, um, particularly Epcot, which he didn't get time to finish you know before before he uh passed away but like i think he was yeah i think he was really he viewed the studio um he had some really bad experiences before he had his own studio um as an animator you know kind of slogging away in kansas city and so i think he was trying to kind of create a utopian communal sort of environment in his studio and and so i think you're really right on point there that that was part of why he felt so betrayed was because he he was trying to create this uh paradise for his for his workers and then his workers are striking against him because he hasn't provided it so 
And, and I, I should say, because I, I don't mean to be making a political statement, I don't, I don't mean it to sound like I'm taking his side, because I'm, I mean, I'm generally in favor of unions, and if, if there were these huge pay discrepancies, I, I would say that's a problem. But you still got to feel bad for Walt, who I think was completely unprepared for this. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. It doesn't have to be political to feel bad for a person. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Do you want to talk about how the trip came about? Yeah, I think it's it's worth it's worth mentioning just because I mean, so normally we talk we kind of start with our familiarity with the movies, and I'll just you know for the next several films that we're going through, um, you you can feel free to free to jump in and share what you knew, but these are these are all brand new to me. Me too. And so I saw I saw both Solidus Amigos and Three Caballeros as a as an adult. So um, yeah, so the reason these these films really came about was because because of the um, rising tensions in the world with uh, the war in Europe, um, which would eventually become World War II. Um, and so there was a push by the United States government um, from the Inter-America Affairs Department uh, to really try and gather allies uh, in South America, and there was definitely. Um, Germany was doing the same, and there were, uh, yeah, feel free to jump in wherever, Michael, on uh, what you know of the geopolitical landscape at that time, because my my knowledge is a little uh, low there. But definitely there was there were areas that were more pro-Nazi and then areas where um, America thought they could have some, or the United States of America, I should say, um, thought they would have a little more influence there. Um, particularly, I thought... <laughs> It was interesting when uh, the when they came into Uruguay, there was a German ambassador there in Uruguay, but uh, they they asked him to leave while while Disney and his crew were there. So yeah, they were I think so charmed with Disney that the they they kicked the German ambassador. Out. I don't know for how long. And, and I mean, I yeah. don't know much. I don't know much about Latin America in the '40s, but I do know that very famously, Argentina is where a lot of Nazi officials escaped to. Uh, and, and of course, Argentina has its own very ugly history with fascism in the, in the 70s and 80s, the, the dirty war and the, the mothers of the disappeared. And actually, um, one of the things that's interesting in El Grupo is that they, uh, they interview this, this woman whose uh, father met with Walt Disney and then, or, I'm sorry, her grandfather met with Walt Disney, and then her father was was a political activist who was among the disappeared. Uh, and the, the disappeared for people who don't know are these these people who were abducted. They were they were uh, rebels who were abducted by the fascist Argentine government and often taken up in a helicopter and just pushed out, you know, and they they were never heard from again. Um, so it's 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 interesting to hear so much stuff with fascism and freedom and all this other stuff. And it's interesting that Argentina is one of the countries because as far as I know, there was no major fascist component to Brazil or, well, Chile also has its right-wing dictator, but uh, Argentina is the one in particular I think of because it's where the, because it's where the Nazis went. Yeah. So this is uh, a little bit of a demonstration of maybe, I mean, America or United States is uh, growing influence in the world or growing uh desire to be influential in the world and uh you know the the start of the use of kind of i guess what you'd term soft power if i'm using that term correctly i think so uh, yeah with the 
you know, ex- exporting culture, um, cultural exchanges and those sorts of things to, to try and really build uh, goodwill between the countries. I think I think a lot of people in 2017, maybe, however, whatever year you're listening to this in, since 2017 is almost over, uh, a lot of people in our age are not so aware of these kind of cultural ambassador missions that we used to do. We sent dozens and dozens of artists to the Soviet Union, for example, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, to give them a, a more cheerful view of what the United States was, especially in terms of its cultural output. So I, I definitely, I don't know how closely the good neighbor policy, which is what this is called, I don't know how, how closely the good neighbor policy is related to that, but I think certainly they have similar methodologies. Yeah, and so as far as this as far as this movie goes, um, basically Disney was in such financial straits that they were they were really looking to for how they were going to continue making movies. They were making a lot of um, educational films for the government, um, as well like education for their for the military, like how to load guns and things like that. And then uh, they made a couple uh, propaganda pieces uh, for the United States. And so they they're working for the government and earning some money that way. And then uh, this yeah this good neighbor program enabled them to uh, basically the government paid for Disney and his crew to travel to South America uh, for a few months. And then there was also kind of a guarantee of um, that they wouldn't lose money on the film, right? Like right, yeah, um, the government was gonna was gonna fill in the gaps if any existed, which they did not. Solidus Amigos was a was a big hit. Although I think Walt said that they came close to asking for the subsidy on three caballeros. Hmm. to ask you josh you you live in china um do do we do any kind of cultural exchange program with china um you know yes we do um yeah there well and you know i don't know how much of it is government and how much of it is just uh multinational corporations so i should be careful about how i speak about it because i don't i don't actually know you know china's in a different position than the ussr was because they've adopted certain elements of capitalism Right. So like the NBA, for example, is huge here. So is that a cultural export? In some ways it is, right? And, right, right. Uh, and like or NBA. World. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, there's a good example. Disney, you know, there's a couple Disney's. Uh, there's one in, in Shanghai and one in Hong Kong. Um, and so, yeah, there's that sort of thing. But then there's definitely groups that come through and, uh, you know, do these sorts of cultural exchanges um, from from a lot of different countries seem to do it. So, um, you know, there was a group here a couple years ago, I remember from France, uh, that was, you know, they, they played a lot of the traditional folk music from their part of France and stuff. And, um, you know, they were in the, they, they actually came and visited the school where I work, but they also, you know, did some other things in town. So I know stuff like that happens. I know that stuff like that happens uh, even from the United States. Um, but again, I don't know how much of it is individuals working to do that, how much of it is government subsidized and how much is just our 
you know, globalized world where, you know, like the NBA wants to sell more jerseys or whatever, you know, <laughs> so. Right. We should also say that just historically, part of the good neighbor policy was a guarantee from the U.S. that we wouldn't be interfering with affairs in Latin America unless we were asked to. Uh, hmm. As far as I know, FDR kept that promise. Obviously, that promise was not kept for the rest of the 20th century. The U.S. has a long and ugly uh, history of removing democratically elected leaders in Latin America and replacing them with, I think, what we could safely call dictators, including, I believe, Pinochet in Chile was backed by the United States government. Um, so we were not always good neighbors, it's worth pointing out. I also read that Woodrow Wilson's the first one to use that term. Uh, so he declared us good neighbors of Latin America and then invaded Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> so so our, our dealings with Latin America are not always as sunny as they are in Saludos Amigos. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps we need to have a crossover episode with our uh, City of Man friends and they can they can fill us in on all, all of these uh, sort of things potentially. But Yeah, it'd be good if somebody did because I don't know that much. Yeah, I, I should know more. I, I actually, it's, um, I, I enjoy being asked, like, oh, you're in China, so what do you know about this thing? But, um, it's, it often turns out embarrassing for me because I'm like, oh, I should, I should probably look into it. I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> you can't know everything. <laughs> That's true. which is these live action segments where they talk about the trip to South America. Uh, it, I, I don't know what percentage of the film is live action, but it's, I would say 15 to 20%. It's, it's a substantial, it's substantial amount of live action footage and you actually see the animators on screen, which is, which is kind of cool. And you see uh video of, uh, of them visiting various parts of Rio and, uh, Buenos Aires and uh, Santiago, and and actually on the DVD, I don't know if you have the DVD or not, but on the DVD there's another little documentary they made. I, I, it must be period, and they they talk in more detail about what they were doing and what the what the what their impressions of the cities that didn't make it into the the cartoons. But what I mean, what do you think of that frame device? Did you find it effective, or just weird? Uh, well, a little of both, and I think I think. So some of this is, again, coming uh, from our point in history uh, where, you know, just you can if I were to find out about Brazil, <laughs> there's so much I could do to find out about Brazil. Right. Um, but in the 1940s, if I wanted to know anything about Brazil, like what could I do? I don't I don't really know. Like like how much, you know, like it seems like seeing this footage and of the, the and that framing device would have been very 
amazing at that time, I think. I feel like that, right? It wasn't unamazing now. I, I mean, I was talking on Twitter about how much I would like to see Rio in the 1940s. I have n- never had really any interest in Rio de Janeiro, but like the, the movie makes it look so bright and colorful, and, and, and the, the Walton El Grupo documentary does the same. And it uses real footage, obviously, instead of cartoon representations. So yeah. if, if, the, if, the, if the goal here is to help American tourism in South America, and I think that must be at least part of it. It's got to be mission accomplished, right? Because I think it would be difficult to see this movie and not to want to see Latin America. Right, yeah. And, yeah, I think... So I'm, I'm thinking of other things that do this, um, both both on the entertainment value way and then in the... Um, and then maybe in the more educational way. And I think this film kind of... It balances that line pretty pretty nicely especially in the in the live action parts the the kind of framing parts um they i think they balance it really well and so like i'm thinking like of like national geographic specials or something like that right where you you know see an area or um more on the entertainment side i'm thinking of like i don't know um like maybe the james bond films or the you know, something, you know, some sort of action adventure that's set in some exotic location where, you know, just the fact that it's set there kind of, you know, gives you a feel and a flavor for the place and maybe make you want to go see it or, you know, to visit, visit a place like that. Right. And when, and you, you said Epcot earlier, which I think is the right, the right comparison. Cause I mean, the, the world showcase area of Epcot really is like this in the sense that it, it gives you, um, exaggeratedly quaint versions of famous places uh and to some extent you want to go there and they they have little movies and stuff that t- tell you teach you about the place in an entertaining way and you, i mean you you wouldn't you wouldn't confuse that with actually going but it does give you some sense of the place i suspect although maybe not the the two I, the two countries i've actually been to that are in world showcase are the united states and canada and one of them, either one of them, really reminded me of the United States or Canada. <laughs> so <laughs> right. I mean, maybe yeah, that's how Italians and French people feel about their pavilions. Right. There is that danger there of like within the quaintness or the cuteness of it that you, um, I don't know, that you clean up the image of a place so much that you know you kind of lose um, what it actually is. Right. I think. I mean, Disney's kind of accused of that from time to time. Wait, it's it's interesting because the animators in Walton El Grupo, like, went out of their way to find locals to tell them things to do that weren't on the government itinerary. So at least in terms of their trip, they they really did try to get off of the beaten path a little bit, and they you know spent all night dancing at these nightclubs and uh, other things that I'm not sure I would have imagined Walt Disney's animators in 1943 to do. 1941 is when the trip was. Yeah. So, yeah, you have this like sociological documentary function of the of the of the um, frame narrative, but also I, I think one of the interesting things the frame narrative does is show you how you take a real world place and turn it into a cartoon because it shows you what the animators were interested in, and it'll show you like a video clip of an area, and then it'll show the watercolors that Lee and Mary Blair made of it, and then all you know you you see like characters evolving out of these um 
out of these live action places. And that was really interesting to me as someone who wanted to be an animator when he was a kid. And I didn't because I have absolutely no talent for it. <laughs> I can't draw at all. But um, I, I, I thought it was interesting to see how animators do their thing um, from the real world. Oh, I, I very much agree with you. I think the, uh, especially for, if someone is listening to this show, um, then you're probably a person who's, who's fairly interested in animation, I would think. And so, yeah, I think that, that part was very, yeah, just fascinating to get kind of, you're, you're watching a movie, but within the movie, you're getting the best behind the scenes of the movie. So. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's postmodern in its way. Because it, it doesn't let you forget you're watching a movie. I, I was, for the most part, with with one exception, more interested in the live action stuff than the animation. I think um, the the actual shorts that make up this movie they were fine, but the uh, the live action parts are what makes this movie weird and interesting. I agree, and I think yeah, the the animation is almost a letdown after the. <laughs> I hate to say that because I, I love the I love animation. I mean, that's why we're doing this podcast, right? So it, it feels bad to even say it, but they are a bit of a letdown after seeing the the real thing, or the, at least the real thing through the camera footage, right? Um, and then what the animators ended up coming up with, it's, yeah, it didn't it it didn't fully capture the the flavor of the place or it wasn't, you know, I wrote down a quote from, uh, John Canemaker, who is in the Walton El Grupo documentary. He's an author and a animation historian. And he talked about how you have, you have the touches of culture, but it doesn't really incorporate it or create something totally new. And then he said the, the U S influence seemed to overwhelm the Latin influence. And he, he, attributed a lot of that to the fact that um you know there was 18 people on the team that were there in um south america but then they they took these things back to the studio and you know the there's there's plenty of people working on these movies who on the animated bits at least who who weren't there right and so right it kind of lost it lo- i kind of lost some of it in translation his one exception to that was uh in the the last short in here which is um I don't want to butcher the name. Aquarello do Brazil. Sure, it's the it's the it's the segment, the the very famous one with Jose Carioca, the the parrot who who wears the the kind of flat top hat. I mean, if you if you know the three caballeros, he is the one who's not Donald and not Panchito. Yeah, I, I yeah. agree with him. That that is the that is the one segment that's really beautiful and interesting and and having never been to Rio de Janeiro I don't know it captures the spirit of the place but it does seem more of a piece with the live action segments that we see at Rio also the music's really yeah. fantastic and yes it's it's so good and and the impression I got from watching the documentary this is obviously not a podcast about the documentary but we're spending a long time on it on the um Walton Grupo is that they really they love the Rio de Janeiro bit the most. Like Yeah, they, they really they were, were looking forward longest. to going to Buenos Aires. Yeah. And so I think I think that comes through. And by the way, we're gonna keep returning to Walton El Grupo because can we agree it's a better movie than Saludos Amigos? <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> I would I would agree with that, yes. Um yeah, other than that last short, which I think is wonderful. So yeah, so it has it begins with essentially <laughs> 
them creating Brazil out of watercolors. And it, it has that, that, that semi-abstract quality that we've noted in certain elements of Fantasia, uh, in the, uh, the acid sequence, the, the pink elephants on parade from Dumbo. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, and, and we'll see it again and again and again in uh, Make Mine Music and Melody Time. You know, there's not exactly a plot. Uh, Jose Carioca teaches Donald to dance the samba. But mostly it's it's just elements of Brazilian culture kind of appearing, moving in time with this wonderful music and uh, then disappearing or morphing into something else. I, my favorite section of that yeah. is, is when the flamingos pop up and dance. I just think that's a, I think mm -hmm. that's a wonderfully animated segment. Yeah, it's so it's so wonderful, and it's it does the things that only animation can do. Where it is that, you know, it's the dripping watercolor that, or yeah, that turns into the flamingo legs, and then it pans back up, and it's you know, there's flamingos there where before it was, you know, just blotches of colors or flowers or whatever, and then um, they do that a couple times. Uh, the banana is turning into the two cans. Yes, which is really great. The tree turns into a bird. Uh, the palm tree um, becomes the the plume of the bird and the bird flies around. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really lovely. It's, it's really well done too. And I was, um, the other thing that struck me is that there's another really well-regarded, um, piece of animation, the duckamuck short, where you see Daffy, um, in various scenes where, and the paint, the paintbrush is coming in and it keeps changing the background on him or it, um, you know, changes his, uh, changes his outfits on him and, and th things like that. And I was thinking there's got to be a direct line of influence from this to that because it, um, the, the Warner Brothers is short is obviously as much uh, going for a much different effect with the, the humor and the kind of the craziness of it. But it's very, it's very similar in, in the way the, the paintbrush comes in and paints the scenes and stuff. That's interesting. I, I, I had not thought of that, but it, the, that comparison makes sense to me. So, I mean, we, yeah. we agree that's the best one. Do you want to just go through and talk about the other shorts? Uh, yeah, there was only, there's actually only four, which right. is really, really interesting. Like, it's this is a very short movie, but yes, um, that one that one is the long, the by far the best. It's not, it's not close. Yeah, um, no, I, 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 yeah, I, would, I would agree go ahead with that. And, and run through the rest. So the the first one is is about Lake Titicaca. So it's up in is that Bolivia and Peru. I think Lake Titicaca is the border between those two, those two countries. So mm -hmm. you, you get Donald Duck, who is a uh, who is a tourist, and uh, the kind of the narrator kind of talking about what it's like to be a tourist in Lake Titicaca and the the Inca, uh, the Inca area of South America. Yeah. So the narrator here is Fred Shields, and he narrates the he, he narrates all three of these shorts, and I think. <laughs> um, I, I knew him. I knew his voice from uh, the propaganda film that Disney did a, around the same time, which is, um, I don't know, basically encouraging people to pay their taxes. I forget what it's called. Spirit of the 
Do you know what I'm talking about, Michael? I don't. I don't know that one. I, yeah. I have okay. I have the D, the DVDs with all the war shorts. I should go back and look at them. Yeah, it's a Donald Duck one, and it's ah, uh, yeah, that's gonna bug me later. But anyway, um, it's called Spirit something Spirit. But anyway, he he also does the the narration of that, and he does a few of the um of the other Goofy shorts. I was gonna ask um, if he did the Goofy sports shorts. Yeah, he did um just a couple of them. I was surprised. Well, at least according to IMDb, I was surprised how few he did because I felt like I knew his voice better than the amount that was that was there. But maybe whoever they get for the other uh, goofy shorts um, had a similar sort of um, way of speaking. But because both Lake Titicaca and El Gaucho Goofy, which is which is the Goofy short here, um, both of those feel very much like the classic Goofy sports shorts, which are some of the funniest animation ever made, and yet I would not call Lake Titicaca or El Gaucho Goofy the funniest animation ever made. <laughs> but it's it's got that style from from those shorts. So if you like those. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's putting it kindly, I think, that it's not the funniest. I mean, it's just, it's, it's too on the nose or something. There's some funny bits to them. I mean, it's it's Donald Duck, who's my favorite of the the non-feature animation Disney characters, and so anything with Donald is going to be kind of funny. But he he seems relatively reserved um, here. He's not he's not doing his full rage attacks the way he does in in his own shorts. So even even that's a little bit of a letdown. Yeah, he doesn't do any of his normal. I mean, he gets frustrated. For sure, but he doesn't. He doesn't get his normal sort of lose the temper, dance around um, Donald that you're maybe more. I don't know. It's the classic Donald, right? I mean, it's the right. Donald that even even uh, you know uh, the parrot Joe knows that Donald and, and imitates it, right? Right. right. <laughs> but but you don't you don't see it here. Yeah, um, it's it's funny because the the DVD includes one of the all time great. Donald Dork, Donald Dork, Donald Duck <laughs> shorts. Uh, Don Donald, where he's he's courting a senorita in Mexico, and and the the comparison between that short, which is from the early '30s, I think, and uh, and Saludos Amigos does not does not speak favorably to the movie because he is so funny in that short. He's he's trying to woo this woman. And uh, anytime something bad happens to her, he falls on the ground laughing at her. Like he just he just can't, <laughs> he just can't help himself. And she uh, she she just beats she just beats the living crap out of him. And she steals his well his car breaks down and she just like pulls a unicycle out of her purse and rides away. It's it's a really funny short. It's got some great Donald stuff. I, I would not I would not say that Lake Titicaca has some great Donald stuff, but there is I mean there are some funny bits. There there's the the bit he's riding a llama across a. Uh, across a suspension bridge, and he flips out and almost falls, and you know, yeah, it's, it's fine. Yeah, the llama, the llama is really good. Um, I mean, even even the beginning where the the little boy is, you know, charming the llama with his flute and stuff like that. That that part was all okay. Do you think um, they really charm llamas with flutes in Peru? I, I really, I really wanted to know. I was really curious about that, <laughs> but I, I didn't look it up. So, so, so one interesting, know. one interesting thing about this short is the joke is never on South America. Um, there's a little bit of 
uh, what we might call Orientalism. It's, I guess, technically the West, but it's not the, you know, there's a little bit of, oh, look how quaint, look how strange they are. But the joke Mm -hmm. is almost always on the American tourist. So the the things that happen to him happen not because Peru is a terrible place, but because he's an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting, especially after watching the uh, Walt and Ogrupo movie where they've got Walt Disney all dressed up in the, in the garb and stuff, you know, like it's, it's almost the same shot with Donald. Um, He's dressed up, he's dressed up, but yeah, he's dressed up in the exact same sort of uh, traditional, traditional garb or whatever. So, we were watching, and uh, there's the scene where Donald takes pictures of the locals. Like, they're, they're walking by, and he's following <laughs> them and taking pictures, and Victoria goes, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I think, the, I think the joke's on him. I, 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 think, yeah. I think the point of the short is don't be a tourist like Donald. Yeah. Yeah, what's funny is we get the opposite experience here all the time, where people always are wanting to take pictures of us. So. Oh, sure. I mean, I guess, I guess we're like, yeah. We're similar to the, uh, to the, well, yeah, it doesn't really work. Never mind. I was gonna say we're 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 similar to the kid who pops out with a camera and takes a picture back of Donald, but it's not quite that. You're neither a tourist nor a local. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're something else. So there is an image of cultural exchange in the Lake Titicaca short, which is that um, Donald and the boy, I think they sh- they swap clothes. So it's not oh, just yeah. that he tries on the local clothes, it's that the local tries on his clothes. And so yeah. I think there's a sense in which that's what this movie is trying to do. Mm-hmm. To, you know, whatever whatever degree of success you feel like it's doing. Yeah. I feel like, um, yeah, and probably in that way, this, this one is the best as far as that, um, you know, trying to convey that. I mean, outside of the Brazil one, but like of the <laughs> the Brazil one aside, because it's like too good compared to these other three. But yeah, of of these three, I, f- I feel like the other two don't manage that at all. Well, and the the second one, which I guess we can go ahead and move on to, P- Pedrito, the uh, the mail plane. I don't think it even really tries to. Yeah, no, not at all. But yeah. So, yeah, with this, with the, with the mail plane, what the, um, there was, there was one really, I thought a nice gag with the, with the narration where Pedro goes to the school and, um, they say he learns anatomy and they have the skeleton of the, of the airplane. (laughs) 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 But outside of that, um, so there's a quote in this this book, um, Hollywood Cartoons, American Animation in Its Golden Age. And what he says about uh, about this movie is that the story by Joe Grant and Dick Humor uh, demanded a tongue-in-cheek treatment. But Lusk, with Snow White and Pinocchio behind him, and with uh, Bill Teitla and Fred Moore among his animators, apparently could not resist resist asking his audience to care about his anthropomorphic hero. All the clever tongue-in-cheek gags present in abundance do not generate laughter so much as they undermine the sympathy the director is trying so hard to create. I definitely have no sympathy for Pedrito. That's that's true. Yeah. So, yeah. This one, uh, it's... It's early. I don't. I don't know if it's the first, but it's got to be one of the one of the first kind of anthropom- anthrop- 
morphic uh, vehicles that we see, which are everywhere nowadays because of cars, right? Yeah, well, and the, the two the two shorts this makes me think of, they're both much better than this, and they're both a decade later, are Susie the Little Blue Coop. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, this yeah, absolutely. It's it's I actually um yeah, I thought I felt exactly the same. And and uh the little house. Hmm. I've is, not seen that one, I don't think. It's that's a really moving short. It's about a, you know, a little house. It, it starts to get old and they start to build um a city up around it and nobody loves it. It's it's not not dissimilar from Susie the Little Blue Coop, but both of those have an emotional quality that Pedro just doesn't have. And both of those I should say are worked on by Mary Blair. Mm. Um, so I, I wonder how much she had to do with Pedro, uh, just because yeah. those two shorts are so similar to it, but better. Oh, so much better. Yeah. The, the, the only similarity I really saw with Susie is that, that character design. Like it's, it's very similar. Even if, if, if you look at a picture of Susie, um, and a picture of Pedro, like <laughs> I mean, one's an airplane, but they both have that like sharp pointy nose so for pedro it's his propeller but for the car it's like the hood ornament or something but they're they're super similar they look and and then the big eyes on the windshield it's it's i feel like whoever designed the character um it's either the same person or they were taking a, a lot of influence from pedro yeah but like i said both of those shorts are way better than pedro pedro's fine it's a perfectly entertaining short but there's there's certainly nothing special about it the thunderstorm is pretty well animated yeah, the the thunderstorm. I was I, I was noticing the the volcano, or is it a volcano? or It's just the highest peak with the thunderstorm around it. I guess it's not a volcano, but it reminded me of the the way the there's the Pixar short, the I Lava You, or whatever. It, I think that's what it's called. It's not my favorite Pixar short. It's not very good either. <laughs> but they have the anthropomorphized uh, mountain that looked very similar with the the face. You know, on the rock cliff type thing. I haven't seen Moana, but my wife tells me that Moana owes quite a bit to this mountain. Oh, I haven't seen Moana yet either. So, Akantagua, I, guess, I think, is the mountain's name. Yeah, I'm so hesitant to try and pronounce any of these things, so thank you for jumping in there and doing that. <laughs> I wrote it down, but I was like, I don't want to say it. <laughs> I, have, I have kind of basic Spanish reading ability, but I certainly can't pronounce it very well. As, I mean, you, you keep saying saludos amigos, which I'm sure is true, but I can't help myself from saying saludos amigos. Yeah. Well, it comes from the opening song, which we didn't talk about, but that the, the opening saludos amigos song, I really, I really enjoyed. It's that it's that like classic Disney choir that I just I'm such a sucker for. Well, you'll hear you'll hear it many more times in the coming uh, the coming weeks. Yeah. So there's a there's a point in Pedro uh, where his family is his well it's just his mom and dad but his mom and dad are waiting for him uh, to return and they're not sure if if he's going to and it's like these these few sad notes play and it sounds like just not the whole thing but there's like just for a moment it sounds like the sad force theme like when like <laughs> Luke is out looking at like just for a moment I was like I think it's the same notes like in the same like um, you know, the same rhythm and stuff, but then it goes in a completely different direction. But just for a minute, I was like, I actually, I was like, oh, John Williams totally stole that. John Williams uh, steals sometimes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the main Jaws theme is right out of uh, the Red of Spring. Right. 
Well, and we mentioned it last time because it's very similar. Or did we mention it? I don't remember if we mentioned it or not, or if it was just um, I thought to mention it. But you know, it's it's also very similar to "Man Is in the Forest." That Joss theme is right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So, yep. Only other thing I wrote down on the uh, pager short was that the buzzard uh, really reminds me of the crows from Dumbo. Um, yeah. Just just in the way its eyes are, or something. I don't know. Were, were you annoyed, Actually, were you annoyed by the uh, the Disney death where where Pedro dies but doesn't die, <laughs> and then he comes back and the narrator says, "Don't ask me how he did it." <laughs> Very convenient. Yeah, yeah. This this whole one just it it just failed to grab me. I just I didn't really care for it. It's so. the least of the four for sure. Yeah, I would say so. So. I, I think you're right that the, the the problem is its sentimentality is not strong enough to to deal with the gags it's got, and but the gags aren't funny enough to counterweight the sentimentality. It, it does feel like they didn't know what they wanted to do with this short, and so they tried to do two things at once. Right, and it relies so much on the narrator. I mean, all three of these really rely on the narrator. But I was I was actually going to ask you if you had any opinions on that, like using a narrator as as a device. Not that it can't be done well, but it seems like, um, in this case, it seems like a shortcut. Yeah. I'm hesitant to complain too much about it because it works so well in those goofy shorts. Yes, it does. So it's yeah. a device that but, – but I think it requires a certain sort of humor to work, and, and uh, the Pedro short is just not willing to do the sort of humor it needs. Yeah. So I really wanted to love the Goofy short because as Donald is kind of your favorite, Goofy is mine. And I just, I, there, there's, there are parts of this that I really enjoyed, but this one I felt like was, it made me the most uncomfortable in the, this is supposed to be a cultural exchange and it's not supposed to be, you know, laughing at South America type thing. Like, I just, I feel like they didn't, they didn't quite walk that line well in this one. I don't think they made it clear enough that Goofy is an American cowboy pretending to be a gaucho. So you, you have right. another, you have another cultural exchange thing here, which is this is an American coming and taking on Argentine culture and doing a really terrible job at it. But unlike the Donald one where it's very clear Donald is a tourist, this one really does seem like Goofy is actually a gaucho and he's just ridiculous and incompetent. Yeah, I mean they do they do go and grab him out of um, Texas or whatever, um, and there's a good gag that this this one is full of the the gags where it is the narration is saying something that is in complete contrast to what you're actually seeing on the on the screen. Right. And and they start that with grabbing Goofy out of the I forget what the, I forget what he even calls it, but you know, the pristine rustic west or whatever, and it's like it keeping he's surrounded by um oil <laughs> um oil drilling and all that sort of stuff, you know. There's there's very little natural nature left where where Goofy's grabbed out of. 
Right, yeah. So I think I think the joke is Americans aren't as tough as Argentinians. <laughs> yeah, that's probably. <laughs> so, see, to me, all the goofy shorts. I mean, at least all the ones you think of—the baseball one, the football one, this one. How to even even the new one that came out a few years ago? How to install your home uh, stereo? Mm-hmm. All of them are jokes about inauthenticity. That's why it's so funny that the the narrator, the narrator says one thing and the screen says. The screen says the other. So you, you have somebody who is pretending to be something that he's not, and he is roundly punished for it in humiliating and painful ways. And and to, to me, the, the hallmark gag of El Gaucho Goofy is when he's singing La Paloma Blanca, uh, and uh, the record starts skipping because he's not actually singing it. He's just, he's just pretending <laughs> to sing it. Yeah. To, to, to me, that's the center of the short. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe I watched it too harshly, you know, as you say that, maybe I was, um, yeah, just not picking up on the, that, that clarity of that Goofy is, is faking all of this, but. Well, it, it's, um, and it's definitely a C-rate Goofy short. Like, this is, this is nobody's idea of the, of the best, uh, Goofy short, because there's so many great ones, uh, but I, this was fine. Yeah. It has an animated ostrich in it, and I love animated ostriches. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's looking for a Christmas present for Josh. <laughs> I mean, man, those are the, the funniest looking birds on, especially when Disney animators get a hold of them. So, They're yeah. so terrifying in real life, though. You, you've, I went to a petting zoo, and they had an ostrich. Like, who yeah. wants to get near an ostrich and pet it? They're mean. Oh, yeah. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> but not in Disney shorts. So. No, that's true. They're just ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, did yeah. you? One, one thing I thought was interesting about Gaucho Goofy was the the wipes, uh, our, our our comedic wipes. I'm, I'm I don't know that the mm-hmm. sketch invented them, but I, I hadn't noticed this. In, certainly not in any of the movies because they're not as broad as this. But the the wipes like push Goofy and his ridiculous horse off the screen and things like mm-hmm. that. I thought that was pretty funny. Yes, I noticed that too, and I, I thought that was really interesting. Um, yeah, almost in line with, to a certain extent, like the record player, you know, skipping. Like it's almost like there's this, I don't know what you would call it. It's almost like a, uh, like an invasion of the technology that provides the humor in a way. You know, like it's the technology of the, the wipe or whatever. You know, right. like the, the cut cut scene or whatever that that does it and um and they do the same thing uh near the end of the the short which i think is uh, my favorite part of it where they um you know the the music goes into reverse um after he catches the ostrich the first time and and it all you know it has that that backwards uh like a tape reel running backwards sound and then Uh they they show the whole thing again in slow motion so again it's like it's that techno it's that technology um, intruding on this, um, I don't know, uh, historic, cultural, folk sort of, um, you know, sp- doing it through that lens, which which is interesting, maybe. But yeah, the, the the slow motion gag has my favorite slow motion gag, which is when not only does it happen slowly, it happens completely differently. Yes. And, yeah. and, and, and in a humiliating way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so that, uh, yeah, it's not, it's like you said, it's, it's, 
it's just a C. <laughs> but yeah, but if it's you enjoyable. Love, if you love Goofy. There's, yeah, there's there's moments in it. There's moments in it that are good. I so, think this is oh, yeah. Goofy's one appearance in a feature, Disney feature. I'm trying to remember if he's in the Mickey and the Beanstalk part of Fun and Fancy Free. Uh, he definitely is. Okay. Yeah, I remember. Um, yeah, I remember his his part in the uh, when they're singing about the pancakes piled up to reach the sky. Um, there's a there's a gag there with his with his Adam's apple, like gets gets stuck in his. Oh, <laughs> oh that sounds well, I mean, like it does sound horrible when I say it that way. It's, I'm not describing it well. Yeah, well, that is one nice thing about these package films is if you're into the if you're into the characters from the shorts, you do see them in, in a way that you just don't in the longer movies that are trying to tell a cohesive story. That's right. So I, w- I was just going to mention a couple things because I, I think it's interesting when we when we can see how um, the movies relate to each other, how they how they tie to each other a little bit. So um, you've got very Dumbo esque maps of South America. That's true. Yeah. Um, I would actually love to have a globe with like that style of map all over it. I think that'd be. <laughs> I, I I don't know if they make one, but. That'd be cool. I'm looking to see if any such thing exists. Yeah. Um, so again, if you're looking for Christmas gifts for me, um, <laughs> I wouldn't hold out on listeners sending you, <laughs> sending you Christmas presents. Although uh, the CFP, we have a we have a fan who did send us. He sent us all the uh, mugs in the in the CHP collection last year. Oh, very nice. So that was very nice. Yeah. So maybe if you keep um, begging. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, we didn't re- we didn't mention the Spurs as roller skates in the uh, in the Goofy short. I really enjoyed those. A classic bit. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so we should talk a little more about Mary Blair. You said we were going to get a get to talk to her a little more in full on this one, and we did we did not actually say very much about her. So yeah, um, so, we should so- spend it. Walt and El Grupo has a whole section on her. Um, I, not enough for my wife, I'll point out. She was very upset that Mary only got five minutes. But um, the basic deal is when she went down to Brazil, she went with her husband Lee, Lee Blair, and at the time their their watercolors looked essentially the same. So it was very difficult to distinguish who did what. And South America is where Mary Blair became Mary Blair. I, I don't know what happened to her or, or what, what sort of new vistas opened to her. But the, the, the style we all associate with her is born in South America. So this is where she becomes indispensable to Walt Disney. And, and she, she will be through Peter Pan, I think, is the last Disney movie she works on. She, she has these wonderful, distinctive backgrounds that once you've seen what she does, you, you pick up on immediately because nobody draws like her. And then, mm-hmm. um, then of course, she also designs It's a Small World uh, in, in 1964. Um, so uh, 
I, I, I think I have some things written down that I saw that were hers. There's some postcards in the Lake Titicaca section. But mm-hmm. Donald buys some postcards, I think, that are very clearly drawn by her. But for the most part, I think the important Mary Blair stuff here is behind the scenes rather than rather than on the screen. And, and we'll just get more and more of her. I know that she did the Johnny Appleseed section of uh, – I, I can never remember if it's Melody Time or Make Mine Music. But soon enough, we'll, we'll see some more of her of her stuff. Yes, please do continue to to point it out when you see it because she's one that I was not aware of until you guys um, mentioned her to me, and so we yeah, were talking I'm really last interested night to see about how why is there not a Mary Blair biopic? She's such an interesting person. I mean, in in some ways, I think she was Walt's favorite animator in the '40s and '50s, uh, and you know, I think she's the only woman am- animator at Disney Studios during that time. She was uh, she's real tough. And the, the story they tell in, in Walt No Grupo is Lee, her husband, was invited to go on this, and she said, I want to go. And he, he, he told her to get dressed up in her best dress, which she made herself, she made all her own clothes, and put on full makeup and go in and tell, make her pitch to Walt. And I guess it worked, because she got to go. And she's actually featured prominently in the live-action sections. of the, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, you can see her on the plane, for example. She's the woman with the kind of harsh features and uh, bangs. Uh, but she, she's, a, she's a really interesting person, and her art is very distinctive. There's a couple of different uh, coffee table-style art books you can get with her, with her work. The one we have is called Magic, Color, Flare, The World of Mary Blair. I think the other one is called The Art and Flare of Mary Blair. People just can't, mm. can't resist that rhyme. <laughs> that Flare Blair line. <laughs> and yeah. um, we just found out there's a new children's book about her. So, oh really? Yeah. So we're getting that for our niece for Christmas. I hope she's not listening to this. I don't know why she would. <laughs> It'd be very strange for a six-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to. I might check that out too because yeah, I really. Um, as I said, I did. I didn't know about her at all until you mentioned her to me. But I really like um, understanding a little more about the the people and the personalities uh, behind these movies. And then uh, yeah, and that Walt and El Grupo. Uh, film they highlight some of her work and it is it's really i i understand why uh victoria likes her so much so josh i have to i have to point something out this i didn't notice this but the book uh, magic color flare the world of mary blair that uh it's written by john kane maker who who you quoted, oh. who you quoted earlier in the episode well that's great that's a double a double uh uh what good good to get that one because I, I really enjoyed him in the documentary. He was my favorite. When they, whenever they went to him, I was like, uh, yeah. I, I felt like he was very on point in that documentary. So, or that might not be true. Him and, uh, oh, who, Frank Thomas's wife. I really enjoyed her, too. Yeah, she was good. My, I was really touched by, I, I can't remember who it was, but she was named after her grandmother, and they had her, she's 11, 12 years old, they had her reading her grandmother's oh, yeah. letters. Yeah. Yeah, that was cute. I, I was very moved by that. So, uh, can we both agree, we, we recommend Walton El Grupo, and cautiously <laughs> recommend sections of Saladas Amigos? Yeah. If you can find the Brazil part on its own, it's definitely worth it i mean it, it's worth it's worth the film itself i think at that i mean the movie that, is 42 minutes one. long and you can get it i'm sure on amazon for a dollar 99 so, yeah i mean it's worth it. it's worth that amount of money yeah for sure um so we didn't get any um 
you didn't you didn't drop any uh you know highbrow highbrow on us this time michael okay you, have I, have, any, uh, I have one, you want yeah. to throw in there when we okay. were when we were watching it uh, it was 1943 in uh, or 1941 in uh buenos aires and I, I leaned over to victoria and i said uh just imagine, somewhere there, Jorge Luis Borges is writing his most famous short stories. <laughs> so that's, that's the best I've got. All right. Well, that's not bad. Um, yeah, anything in here that uh, you saw that you felt like... I mean, I guess there's, there's, there's maybe something in shaping our understanding or our imagination of, of how different cultures should, should interact or should not interact. Um, or something along those lines. Well, yeah, Any, and I just, anything... I just, I just think a lot of people's impressions of South America must have been formed by this movie. Um, yeah, probably. I, I, yeah, again, I, I, going back to what I said at, at the beginning, I, I can't imagine how, if you were interested in any of that, I mean, in a, in a very cursory way, how you would, how you'd even go back about finding out, you know, <laughs> especially if you didn't have the means or the money to go there. Or you didn't have access to, you know, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guess National Geographic was around at that time. but Yeah, but, and it's part of that same edutainment movement. Yeah. So, I would, so, I would yeah, be I would, interested in knowing if we have any Latin American listeners, uh, whether they felt like this movie is, exoticizes Latin American culture. Because to me it seemed fairly respectful, as, as, as respectful as a cartoon made in 1943 could be expected to be. But, uh, you know, I don't have any skin in the game, so I'd be interested in knowing if we have any listeners from that area, what they think. Yeah, I would love to know that too. Uh, did you see anything in here, particularly uh, Christian? Any Any themes of redemption or... Anything like that? Not particularly, although they mention the Christ of the Andes statue, although they don't show it. And, and of course, they do show the uh, the Christ statue in Rio, because how do you not? Right. Yeah. That was actually something that I noticed in this, was, you know, they're, they're doing the... Um, <laughs> I mean, it, just a very broad introduction of the culture, an introduction of, of the people... Um, but yeah, there is no mention really of religion, which I feel like is, is such a shaping influence in, in almost any culture, right? Either the, the way that they've embraced or rejected <laughs> religion. And so, yeah, well, on, the, on the other hand, we, just... don't, we don't really want to see Donald crossing himself and going into a cathedral, do we? <laughs> <laughs> we do not. <laughs> very well. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm satisfied. Do you have any other things in your notes that you wanted to, to pull out before we... I think we've hit it and hit it all, and I, I also think this episode's probably twice as long as the movie itself. <laughs> <laughs> that tends to be our way. So, um, Before They Were Live is a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network, and we would love to hear from you, uh, as we mentioned. So please help us continue this conversation uh, by emailing us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at the alt with an underscore in between the and alt, the underscore alt. And Michael is on Twitter as well. He is Michael Farmer. Um, our press liaison is Kristen Flippick. Adios, amigos. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>